If you were wanting to reduce Sebastian Barry to a few notable achievements in order to introduce him on a podcast, you could mention that he was laureate for Irish fiction from 2019 to 2021, or that he's the first novelist to win the Costa Book of the Year twice, for The Secret Scripture in 2008 and for Days Without End eight years later. Or you could mention that he's equally adept at writing poetry, plays or prose. But the easiest and best way to appreciate his many talents, apart from picking up any one of his novels, is to simply get on with the conversation. As we sat down to talk about his new novel, Old God's Time, what it feels like to fall in love, the privilege of fatherhood, and how it is that he creates his rich fictional worlds. Sebastian, it is such a pleasure to talk to you uh, about this new novel, and I hope a few of your other novels too. Um, Let's begin with... Actually, let's not begin with Old God's Time. I wonder, are you aware of things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DCEU, as they call it, the Extended Universe? Was that be Spider-Man? And it's all that kind of stuff. I think I had the number one edition of Spider-Man in the 60s as a boy in Ireland. Really? I'm sure we got it a bit late. But unfortunately, <laughs> it probably disintegrated in a cupboard. Buried under a carpet. Somewhere. I believe it's quite valuable. It's very. It's probably worth a lot. Yeah, of that's money. as far as it might have gone. So the reason why I made you look at me very like, what is he talking about? No, the reason no. why I'm saying this is because I have I've coined in my own head a phrase which is the Sebastian Barry universe because oh. the novels that you have written have this lovely thing which is when you read one of your novels it's obviously a fantastic experience and then when you read a second one these names start to appear and you go hang on a minute that's the same surname as in that book or in that one and you realise that there are these family connections even though they're separated often by Mm. large periods of time so I have the Sebastian Barry universe in my head but I wonder how you have approached writing that whether that has been a very conscious and thought out way of writing the books as they come or have you just been sort of picking stories from your own family I believe and then choosing the moment to to write into them if you like there wouldn't be too much thinking out in my existence and I think that's probably correct because you should be as much instinctive in your methods as possible as instinctive as you can be because I don't believe books come from the top part of your brain which is probably overeducated and you read everything it's, it's a completely different separate bit of the brain so you really have to try and get in there as a writer and find out what you have that you could possibly that could possibly transmute into a book. So there isn't a conscious thing, but I did, of course, notice that, of you know, writing the plays in the '90s, that they were mo- mostly n- not exactly family plays because I might hear of a great aunt who had been, you know, a Protestant on the on the island of Shirk and, and know nothing about her, and then write a play somehow in celebration of her forgottenness, mm. and in a lot of the books. Um, for instance, uh, Tom McNulty in Days Without End, and nothing is remembered of him. Uh, I, I, you know, that's an invented name. My great great uncle was at the Indian Wars. That's all I knew. So, that's a tabula rasa. So, but whatever sort of brain I have responds to that. So uh, sometimes people say, "Oh, you have a very interesting family." Well, <laughs> possibly I did, but also you know it's mostly made up, which is obviously what a novel is supposed to be. It's not. It's not nonfiction. Uh, but there are two rivers I can see, you know, to my eyes. They're really the two streams or the two uh, rivulets of the family 
that join with the marriage of my parents, mm. which may or may not be the tenth book of these books. That that era. I mean, that's the most dangerous ground for me. But you know, part of approaching these books is also because, to some degree, elements in them terrify me as a human being. So to find the personal little smidgen of courage to approach the thing is part of the enterprise. I mean, I had a family, I say father who was not interested in family, I never met large segments of a family that you would normally meet uh, in, in, in a normal family. So it was an act of retrieval. And I think that's been my sense of, if I have a sense of mission, it's really to get them back mm. and to bring them close. Partly to have a better understanding of myself as an Irish person in Ireland, because a lot of the adjectives describing me doesn't, they don't really sound very Irish to people, but um, you know, and that, and also your children try and place them. But of course, my children never read my book, so that's been a wasted <laughs> task of mine. <laughs> so it's that. And so, with, with that in mind, uh, where where does Old God's time come from? What was the sort of, I suppose, the, the first well, spark for that book? When I was a little boy, and when we were just back from here, from from London. I'd been to an LCC school here, which a new end in Hampstead. You know, so I was coming into an Irish schoolyard talking like that at the age of six, which was, you know, a license for them to murder me, basically. <laughs> so I quickly learned how to be uh, an Irish person again, but uh, for to save my life. But it, that was in Dorky, and where the book is set. And um, my father stayed behind in London. So it was myself and my sister and my mother and my grandfather, uh, who often came to our rescue financially, uh, had just rented the turret flat in Queenstown Castle, which is an old, which is just a Victorian castellated house by the sea. I mean, it must be worth millions and millions now, but I don't think we thought about those things in those days. Uh, and it was the turret flat. We didn't own it. And there was, you know, a marvelous landlord. Uh, probably incredibly wealthy, but presented himself to us as the gardener, you know, creaking, going along with his creaking wheelbarrow. And I was just a little boy there with my sister and down beside the sea where all the sewer pipes go out, you know, scandalously in those days. And we'd stand on the concrete um, platform, me, me and my sister, amusing ourselves by inventing plays. Mm. And she was, you know, we'd be, even though my mother was an incredibly respected actress in the Abbey Theatre, we did all the hand gestures of bad acting, you know, because that's what we thought acting was. So that, that sort of thing, you know, we were very young. And, um, and indeed, just as in the book, I sent away a coupon to get a box camera, I remember, you know, winning a prize. And for some reason, they sent me a plastic cane, such as Fred Astaire might use in a dance. You know, all the, those tiny things in the book. Are, are you know are from then and and one day again you know I'm only six so I'm looking in I looked in this door in the annex flat which was this sort of lean-to thing he put up the landlord had put up against the side of the castle I think it's gone now mm. I, I was there the other day and I couldn't see it maybe for his grant for his mother or something and anyway he had rented it out to somebody and I just looked in the door and there was a man sitting on a wicker chair looking out to see which is a big thing, you know, looking out to sea. And um, didn't turn his head, but I could see he was smoking a little cigarillo. And the book used to be called The Cigarillo Man. I just looked in at, 
I probably saw him for 30 seconds and never saw him again, I certainly never spoke to him. And I was thinking about him, who he might have been. I might have heard that he was a retired policeman, but thinking about him then for, what is it, 60 years. And uh, it, that, that really intrigues me because I don't quite know some of the answers to the questions you might have about this book, but I do know that that man somehow has come to my assistance because all the things that have been bothering me and and some one of the reasons I probably went to America with the other two books was in order not to have to deal with some of these other issues and all mm. these things that have really troubled me both as an Irish person and personally as a human being being allowed to tell certain things through him has meant that he's been a sort of champion of my soul you might say mm. and also to get that proper distance that you need so whoever he was, whatever happened to him, whatever became of him, and whatever his name was, you know, thank you, whoever you were. Because he's done me a great service, yeah. really. 30 seconds, though. Isn't that interesting? It's yeah. A, yeah, gosh, that's yeah. just a fleeting was, moment that you've been able to... I was a, yeah, but I was a curious little boy. I mean, maybe all children are curious in certain ways. Yeah. But I definitely was, was a strange one. You know, I literally couldn't read or write till I was eight or nine, not because I think, maybe I was dyslexic, I, I don't think it was that though, I just wasn't paying enough attention to that sort of thing. Yeah. I was paying attention to, you know, my great aunt or, you know, people that I loved. Yeah. Indeed my parents whom I worshipped and my sister. You know, I was in fully involved in the drama of those things and I was watching them and listening to them and, 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 and delighting in them, you know. You've mentioned that, that the book did have a different name, uh, but you've now mm. settled on the name Old God's Time. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that title and its meaning? Yeah, that's, well, it's an, it is, you know, it's almost a phrase from Old God's Time itself. It, it means a time so long ago that, you know, there wasn't even a Christian God, like long, long ago. But you can say it about, you know, your childhood. Now, well, that was in Old God's Time. Mm. Or you can say, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I used to know, I used to know what? I used to know Roddy Doyle, but that was in old God's time, like before we were writers or something like that. Yeah. You know, it has that application. But I was, I was building on a little workroom or a workroom for my wife in the ha on the house, on the gable end of the house. And uh, I have a wonderful carpenter friend, uh, really a genius. I mean, let's face it, writing is fine and it's admirable, but if you're a good carpenter, that's kind of better. <laughs> we, we accept that. Anyway, I was in his workshop and, uh, and he used the phrase, and I hadn't heard it for years, and the sort of phrase my grandfather used to use. Now, my grandfather is sort of briefly in this book, because he's the sort of unnamed, and turns out, well, we can't say too much about these things, but anyway, he turns out to be the father. Uh, originally, there's a misconception that she is probably the lover of this young woman, but it actually, it's her father. Um, but that's my grandfather, and uh, he's the temporary gentleman in that book. Mm -hmm. So. And you might say, well, doesn't he die at the end, <laughs> gentlemen? So what's he doing there? But you know, that's another thing about these books. Um, uh, Roy Foster, my great friend, you know, who is an historian and it, it, you know likes things to at least be squared up properly. Uh, you know, there there's sometimes the same things, same characters with different versions, hmm. possibly of the same thought or the same story, but change because I respect the fact that you know you. 
it's taken 40 years and, and you're writing them at, well, 25 years maybe for these books and so you're writing them at different times. So I respect those clashes. I mean, I don't know if people find that, that irritating or not, but it, I, 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 re- I don't want to just straighten everything up. It's not a, you know, a sequence in that sense. It's more literally like you've wandered into that part of my brain mm. and there are the exhibits in it. You know, so I'm sort of unpacking that. It's just taking so long. I mean, 25 years is quite a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, that, so we were, I, I was that little boy, you might say. Now, you can, you know, if you read the book, you'll see that it's all transmuted. There's other things happening. There's a lot of darkness being brought to bear on almost everybody in the book. And, and that's an authentic... That's an authentic echo of, you know, certain realities. But um, it, the, the license, the, the sort of the graceful license that, as I say, comes from really from the character of Tom Kettle. Mm. I mean, even his name, his name, you know, Thomas Kettle is the poet who wrote the beautiful sonnet in the First World War, and, uh, which, which ends, Know that we fools now with the foolish dead died not for king nor crown nor emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed and for the secret scripture of the poor. And obviously I gratefully took this title, The Secret Scripture, for another book. And I suppose I could, and I was tempted to call a long, long way The Secret Scripture, but I didn't. So I used it just for another book. Um, so th- th- he's Thomas Kettle. So Tom Kettle is really my homage to to the real Thomas Kettle, who obviously wasn't a policeman. He obviously wasn't alive in the 90s or anything like that, but actually was a great figure in, in Dublin of his day and is totally forgotten now. Mm. He was a, a great essayist. But I, I'm very grateful to Tom for giving me that ti- the title of a book, you know, at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't talk about them as if they were still alive, but at the same time, Einstein does tell us right. that we don't understand time, that time is actually all, everything happening everywhere, all the same moments. So, yeah, yeah. You know, narrative, narrative time, poor novelists, doesn't really exist. But <laughs> so that won't stop us. Well, that, that's interesting because it, the the narrative viewpoint, if you like, of this book is is Tom Kettle, but he is moving backwards and forwards yes. in time, and there is something very, I suppose, to use the well-worn phrase, unreliable about his narration, because, yeah. of course, it is affected by time, but also his ability to be truthful about the things that have happened in his life. Yeah. Did you know that you would be employing that kind of unreliability from the beginning? Was that an integral part of telling this story? No. I mean, my responsibility is like the child's to see and hear mm. and take down. So as the book unfolds, because I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, I know something's going to happen, but I don't just don't know what it is. And uh, one thing borrows another thing. As Paul Muldoon says, in a poem in another context it was one damn thing after another you might say but um, things rise up to you some some books remain stubbornly closed down mm. as if as if you know they just don't want to be butterflies they'd rather be a larva and uh, and that's fine you've got to respect that as well but other books seem to unfold in front of you they they shuck off various parts of themselves and then the wings are being dried out in the sun and well the, the experience of writing this book was rather like that where i was i was trusting the narrative almost like a reader um 
if I was if I were to try and explain to myself some of the elements in the book, I would say, having referenced Einstein, because the material, some of the material vis-a-vis Miss McNulty and her son actually belongs in the 60s from my memories. There is a sense that, uh, and he does describe her flat as if everything in it belongs to the 60s, which he just notices. And it doesn't matter, you see, for him whatever what's going on in the book because he's living it okay so it doesn't it's not going to phase him but it's set in the mid-90s in Ireland and and yet there are rooms in that castle that I think belong to the 60s Mm. so he has to negotiate that but the reason for that is because he himself is is deeply destabilized I would say he's not so much unreliable because actually the narrative is is giving you an honest account of what's going on mm. so that's in a sense not unreliable he certainly has things that have happened and he's been part of that he really mustn't be thinking of if he needs to, if he wants to have even a modicum of happiness he's been in his he's been in his in, in retired for nine months he's found a way to sit in the wicker chair with his cigarillo look out to sea and feel a certain amount of joy so that's his victory. But then these two lads, younger polis, come from his old um, division to talk to him about an old case. And, and that's really what starts the book. And I had that first chapter maybe for, you know, two years, three years, where they've just arrived in on him, you know. So I had to wait a long, long time before, before, to get what happened next. Because a lot of book... A lot of book writing is waiting, mm. waiting, because you mustn't know anything and you mustn't push anything on it and you mustn't assume and you mustn't also editorialize the narrator mm. and you mustn't make everything straight and square. You must allow it to be uh, sort of authentically what it is. Mm. For instance, you know, modern builders, um, when, you know, when I lived in Greece years ago, I was restoring my father's house and the house didn't have a straight line in didn't have a straight edge, didn't have 90 degrees. It was an absolute, you know, because because a group of fellows had come in and just built it, like an Irish cottage. They'd all built it together. It's like called a metal in Ireland, where a group of local people come and build your house if you're getting married. And uh, But the modern builders who were then restoring it were driven insane by this, and they wanted to straighten everything up. But that's that's not what you should do with a book. A book essentially is it is is running to an old architecture, an old idea of architecture. We do have to be careful about what we can say about yeah. the plot of the book. Yeah, because it actually has a plot, <laughs> which is unusual. For me. <laughs> As I get older, I get more plotty. But there is, I think, some very extreme light and very extreme shade in the book, by which I mean it talks, talks about some very, very dark things. But it also, and we'll start with this, talks about one of the lightest things, which is falling in love. Yeah. if you like and yeah. it felt to me like the book had some of the greatest descriptions of the simple joy and pleasure of falling in love with somebody which was simply to find somebody and to find them almost miraculous yeah. and that the, the fact that they found you miraculous in return was the real miracle T- tell me a bit about where that bit of writing came from because it feels well, I just enjoyed the it the thing so much. that gave me you know it's a soldier's courage you know a novelist's courage it, you're in the trenches you've pissed your cacks you know you, you, you've actually 
you're terrified, but you don't try, you don't show terror because you don't want the lad beside you to be thrown, you know. And then the whistle goes and up you go. So um, the thing that gave me courage for this book, that sort of courage, you know, it's only what you need to get up the ladder and run into the bullets. But because there are there are dark things in the book. When, when we say there's dark things in the book, you know, these are also phrases we could look at in a way because these are some you know the atrocious things that most people experience but have to find a way to carry on with them and have to find a place to put them down to mm. you know what is your necessary and unnecessary baggage but when i was maybe i was 14 and um living in monkstown you know this big old victorian house absolutely isolated um, but eventually, by climbing out the window almost, my parents were very, you know, so sort of unusual people. I was able to find some other human beings my age, you know. And one of the most... I was completely unprepared for it because I was 14, so I knew nothing. You know, you've just kind of entered into the realm of, of just cottoning on, you know, maybe there's other things in life that's about to be revealed to me. And one of them was this girl, you know, who was probably, she might have even been a year or two younger than me. In those days, um, two years, uh, you know, a girl would never go out with a boy her own age because girls were considered to be two years in advance of boys. I think this is probably still true, although maybe we should say 20 years in advance of men. <laughs> uh, so um, she was like a supreme being. I mean, she was this very, very beautiful person. I mean, that was obviously you noticed that when you're a kid. I mean, she was so beautiful that I, in contemplating her, in being close to her and she was going out with somebody else, uh, you know, I would be, I would be fearsomely dizzy, dizzy. It was as if um, it was, everything people had said about God and religion out the window. This was the truth of the world, this radiance. And eventually, by some miracle, uh, we, you know, we were together, which I still can't understand why she thought I was worthy of her, of her love. I, I don't get it still. I mean, she did teach me how to smoke and, you know, the major. You don't know if you remember those. Uh, so, you know, uh, that, that was kind of our pact. Our, that was our loving pact. I'll teach her how to smoke. Um, but I just, I couldn't get over her. I didn't get over her. So, so and that, that feeling. So you might say, well, okay, that's kind of puppy love or that's kids being in love. But actually... You know, it, it could, you could actually found a religion on that love. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe people have tried um, because it's so absolute. It's as if you've gone as a little boy, you know, as a boy from being a sort of darkened planet to, you know, bright sunshine. And, uh, and as I say that, the sun has just <laughs> sneaked in your window, which is rather wonderful. Um, so, it, you know, to retrieve. And so... In the making of the book, to feel, it's not that I had to feel it again, because to be honest, when I met my wife many years later, uh, it was the same thing. I was just older, I was 29. Mm. Uh, she was 27 again, you know, that two year gap was being respected. Um, very important. 
I was, you know, I was in a different way, but 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 the e- it was the equal feeling of, of. You know, you will serve that person. You will feel you will have absolute devotion towards that person because you've noticed the almost catastrophic radiance of them. Mm. And I think that's important to say because, you know, when we see, you know, when you see a homeless person or you see anyone wandering the street or, you know, I'm 67 now when you see older people, don't for one second think that they haven't experienced something like that. And that's what keeps them, their heart beating and their brain turning over. And no matter what difficulties you're facing, you're able to do it because you've experienced that. That's the thing that's being given to you. So to reconnect with that in vis-a-vis that first love, as you might say, gave me, it just carried me through. It was as if, like in Native American culture, um, you know, there was a belief that if you wore certain robes that no bullet could hurt you, if you had the proper medicine, it was called, in, in, your, in your buffalo scrotum, on your saddle, important little things, you know, bits of bobs that it would protect you in battle. Well, that was my protection in battle, in mm-hmm. the battle of the book, because it is a, it was a book that was a challenge to me, uh, because I simply had to go to certain places that, I, that needed forensic clarity. And I, we can talk about that too, because, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole um, realm of say child abuse in the book that I couldn't have gone near without feeling the privilege of reconnecting with that sense of love with that mm. that woman so I won't even say, you know it doesn't matter girl woman it's not about that it's about it's a sort of planetary matter you know you find the star that will bathe your wretched planet in light and, and give the possibility of life in it. You know, mm. people, that sort of love gives you life. Mm. So having reconnected, as it were, I, I mean, it's almost wicked to say to you, you know, how sometimes people think, you know, oh, you must sit there and God knows. But, you know, sometimes that's very thrilling. It is, you know, say with the First World War book, you know, it must have been terrible to go back to battles. No. Having had the, you know, wildness of heart to read accounts of battles and to have it in your brain and and then to write it you know that's just sheer privilege mm. so that's always an excitement that's always a joy you know and difficult as the places were in this book that I had to go personally and and then you have to bring your readers there i suppose nevertheless it was done with a sense of joy because of that first love lost love you know all the better a love for being lost <laughs> <laughs> um I suppose, is there an element as well of responsibility that comes with writing into those darker areas that you've mentioned? Because as you say, you have to take the reader there. It's incredibly difficult to read and to think about when you're there. And it felt to me possibly some of the darkest terrain you've had to cover. Um, But what keeps you going when you're writing that? Is it that sort of sense of responsibility to people who may have been through that kind of, I suppose, what I've termed in my head the opposite of love, sort of that that abuse of love. The opposite of love. I mean, that's brilliantly put. It is exactly correct. Also, the murderer of love, mm. the eraser of love, the crusher of love. Um, 
And this has been, obviously, I mean, in a public sense, it's been a huge issue in Ireland with the priesthood and other institutions and everywhere and in families. And what, and no one is sort of exempt if we're honest about it. We've all touched on it somewhere, whether it's, you know, a friend or sibling or, or yourself or, you know, and it's almost impossible to deal with. See, my thesis is, having thought about this and been obliged to think about it for 40 years, 50 years, is um, when it, a grown-up person approaches a child and does something to that child that has nothing to do with the child, but the child does not even under, begin to understand, mm. they are, in a sense, in my, to my mind, murdering that child. to some extent destabilizing that child so much that you're you're obliged as that person to reconstruct yourself and that becomes the task of your life simply to survive the damage done to you by somebody else mm. so to me it is a capital crime and i'm not even saying you know i'm not in favor of capital punishment i'm not saying that it is like the worst of crimes mm. It's actually, that's the phrase used in the Catholic Church to describe it. It's called a crimen pessimum. Now, it just so happens that a cousin of mine was the auxiliary bishop of Dublin at the time of McQuaid, mm. Archbishop McQuaid, who, and he was McQuaid's right-hand man. I was terrified to discover when I was reading some of the reports of mm. child abuse in Ireland. And this is many years ago now, and it certainly troubled me so much that I, I could hardly breathe reading it or after reading it. So that meant that my cousin and Archbishop McQuaid, my cousin had been put to the task of looking into this man who was taking photographs of girls in the children's hospital of all places. He was the chaplain. Mm. And he sent these photographs to be uh, developed in England, thinking that would keep him safe godless the godless, godless Britain God knows. and of course he was reported and but the the chief commissioner of the day of the of the police brought them to Archbishop McQuaid and said over to you mm. you know what to do now bizarrely enough will at that time this wasn't a crime mm. on the statute books it was only a crime for a family member to abuse a child so in a bizarre way it wasn't even on the statute books it is now of course yeah. but um so McQuaid obviously gave the stuff to my cousin. He looked into it and he said to him, uh, to his credit, it is indeed a cream and pestilence, must be sent to Rome. This has to be tried in at least in the ecclesiastical courts, which is what usually would have happened. McQuaid, disastrously, and I don't know if I can even avoid saying wickedly, said, no, no, this will cause scandal in the church. Yeah, We'll hide it. So then the next, you know, McQuaid was the head of Blackrock College. And just in the last few weeks, we've discovered that countless boys were abused in Blackrock College. So these things haven't, still haven't been connected together. But I think there was a great wickedness there. That's my fe feeling about it. Okay, so there you are. There's all the stuff. But um, my responsibility, my th what I found most frustrating in my own understanding of it is that when I described it when you try to describe it to somebody what it is 
visually because it's obscene isn't it mm. it's like the soldiers being killed in Vietnam they used to show it on television and then they decided not to do it anymore because it's obscene but actually you're be probably better showing it mm. because then maybe you won't have so many wars lads you know so you never see it you know I mean I don't even you know in the course of an interview like this we don't want to bring up a visual image necessarily but I wanted just as in the second world war in the first world war book I want to describe what soldiers went through precisely forensically you know with the mud and the rotten bodies and all the rest of it so that if you wish to call an Irishman in British uniform in that war a traitor at least you'd know what you were talking about mm. in a similar case because I found that in discussing this over the years over the decades with people if you meet them a month later they have no idea what you said to them because they've banished it but we need to have an image of what it is because if you call it, you call it child abuse you call it this you have nice names for it or, or a kind of occluding names for it you're not talking about the thing anymore mm. but you need to be talking about the thing because you need to have that sense of utter rescue for people and mobilized sense of thing and then what about justice you know my great friend who's a senior counsel in Ireland talks about these the the nature of justice brought it, it, justice is almost justice system is almost helpless before these dark human things so dark that they're they're invisible almost mm. so it's that I wanted to make some sort of effort to make as as um, you know there's a book called The Darkness Visible which is about depression but I wanted to make certain darknesses visible because I thought if the reader will trust me and it's also because I needed to tell you this through Tom K Kettle because unless you feel the same sense of mobilized justice as I do I can't breathe it's that so there's an element of that but at the same time a book you know again a book is written in a sort of joyous state it's hard to explain the contradiction between those mm. two things um, I have had great I mean I've been heartened usually by readers over the years because you know the secret scripture is a dark book in its own way and certainly a long long way but readers are sort of fearless because you know all the lads in the trenches you know it's just there were no women there so I have to say lads but they were you know they were they were conscripted people they were people in their jobs here in London mm. in Dublin you know who who well in, in Ireland they were all volunteers actually but in, in this country you're conscripted so you know it's ordinary so-called ordinary people who are the most important thing we have so in the trenches and it's the same it's the same as you know a reader a reader might be frightened by something they're reading but again you know there's the, the person beside them you don't want to spook them when the whistle blows you need to know you need to go up the ladder it's that you know because I'm 67 so and I, and I write peculiar books and um, and I, I just needed I just thought it was important I don't know what I thought but I just this is what I made out of all the storm that I've noticed that blows continuously and unstoppably around this thing we call child abuse, which mm. to me is actually a form of child murder. Mm. You've mentioned your age there, and one of the many quotes in your book that I found myself underlining relates to that. Uh, the sentence is, what age does to faces should be forbidden by statute, which made me laugh quite a lot <laughs> as a man who's rapidly ageing himself. But tell me a bit about 
aging because this book is 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 filled with thoughts about that and what it does yeah. to a person's body but also of course what it does to their 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 mind and their soul i think the reason tom has been such a pal to me is we're the same age you know last year i became a pensioner <laughs> into all of intents and purposes so i know i know what that is and uh you know when you when you have the fortunate misfortune as it were to pass 60 there's a ticket of possible challenges ahead of you and it's the same for him um, you enter into a realm of uh, medicine uh, that to some degree you'd rather have absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> and you'd rather be 45 for the rest of your life but you know there it is I mean you're in the trenches okay so it's the trenches of early old age let's call it that um, and you know he's not a vain man he's um, he's an ex-policeman actually you know and a very very good policeman he has what's called the Walter Scott medal which is what the guardie have now I am the proud holder of, twice of the Walter Scott prize for historical fiction but it's nothing to do with that Walter Scott or the very wonderful Duke of Buccleuch and his wife Scott who who gave that prize it's actually weirdly enough it was a Colonel Walter Scott in New York I think in 1923 who endowed the Gardaí for this medal anyway so he has that medal but I did delight in the name of the medal I have to say and he has not paid much heed to it it's somewhere in the cupboard and actually has he has already given it away uh, in, in a way I can't say because it's part of the book but uh, you know he's a distinguished person but he's he's I mean, he's been in the, he's been in the army before poli in the police the only reason they took him in the police because he had become a sharpshooter in the army usually if you'd been in a home as he was as a child you wouldn't be they certainly wouldn't take you in the police mm. because it was a shame you know you were a child you were the spawn of the devil basically if you were illegitimate but he's managed you know much to his happiness to get into the police because he's a sharpshooter so you know he's there and now he's done his work he's been retired He's had a terrible couple of years before he has retired, as you will find out in the book. But he's made peace somehow with himself. He's, he's, ach he's achieved that thing that we all hope to achieve, a sort of balance in his life, which is about to be completely pulled out from underneath him. So my identification, he is kind of my ambassador of old age in that sense, or, or early old age, let's call it, mercifully. Um, and we're in the same place uh, on the on the, the notched stick of life, you might say. Um, and I, you know, I, I, one of the graces of love is that, you know, I married somebody who not only was brilliant but also happened to be beautiful, and and I can see how she feels about getting a bit older. The mirror, you know. I can see what that is and uh, I don't quite have that feeling myself but I don't think there was too much to lose in the first place <laughs> but I could see all that you know and he's a man who will who's count his blessings and I think that if I've learned anything I think that's the only recourse we have to the challenges put before us to just keep reminding yourself. I think they call it positive thinking or something, but I'm sure there's a name for it in America, in California. 
but he's like that and you know he's what I like about him I mean for some reason I'm not in the slightest bit humorous or funny or nobody ever laughs with anything I say except maybe sometimes in an event where, you, where you're freed from yourself and you're probably working out a completely different part of your brain and sometimes you do say maybe maybe it's boyish humor I don't know but anyway audiences are kind enough to do that lovely thing audiences do with this little wave of laughter um, now, of course, having said that, no one will ever laugh at anything I ever say. <laughs> but he has wit, you know. He has wit. He's, I like the way he's funny, even on his own. Hmm. He doesn't. It's not that he doesn't take himself seriously, but uh, but he certainly takes a lot of things seriously. But he doesn't take, you know, getting wet in the rain very seriously. You know, yeah. Uh, if I might tell you, you know, this, this orange togs figure in that book, and. Uh, this is the way I make a book. You know, everything outside of a book kind of draws. It's like a magnet. This is also an answer to your earlier question. You know, how do you make a book or making this book? It's like a magnet that starts to draw things to it, or maybe even like a sun that starts to draw other planets mm. closer. And uh, I had a wonderful experience in in uh, Sydney years ago, a few years ago actually. I was on the ferry to Manly, which is quite important. And I noticed that because he was at the festival as well, my friend Roddy Doyle was also on the ferry to Manly. And I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. We've got to say hello. So very uncharacteristic of me, because Irish writers can sometimes want a little bit of distance, maybe a continent <laughs> between each other. But anyway, uh, not for any bad reason, but just, you know. Um, so I went over and we went to Manly together. I had my togs with me, but he didn't. So we went into a clothes store on Manly, because you can't go to Manly and not swim. It's a famous swimming place. Although we swam actually in the the safe little cove, whereas all the manly men were doing the big waves. We didn't do that. But the lady looked at us both. I mean, two Irish writers. I thought we were fairly well dressed. I don't know. And she looked at us and she said, well, I do have some secondhand <laughs> swimming gear. So we went along with this. This is a sort of version of this in the book. Obviously very different. But, and uh, she showed us these yellow togs for, you know, $3 or whatever. So we bought them. So I sat on the beach. We sat on this safe little covey beach. And even so, we were a bit worried about, you know, having things stolen. So I, I looked after his stuff while he swam. Like, These are like two old fellows. And then he looked after my stuff while I swam. And, and we talked for hours sitting in that little cove about everything under the sun and became fast friends. And, you know, I owe it to those yellow togs. So I, when I finished the book, I said, I emailed Roddy and said, I finally got the yellow togs. They finally appeared in a book. It's not that I put them in or anything, but you know, <laughs> you may say, oh, yellow togs. Why is he saying yellow togs? And what's the significance? And they, you know, they do have an important role at the end of the book. Yeah. But that's why, you see. That's the real answer to your question, why? <laughs> because, you know, I'm quite mad. But I think it's important to say about Tom, you know, as I was saying, that he's been through all these experiences. He, he probably is suffering. They didn't even call it PTSD in his day. They had another name for it, as, as he said. I can't remember what the phrase is, but it's in the book. Um, not only in his army experience, which was in Malaya, where, where he was shooting rebels at a distance, you know, with that atrocious undertaking, shooting people in their own country uh, at a distance, which is a sort of horrible Irish reversal of experience, or you might say, um, whatever. But he's also had these, you know, his experiences with his wife and his children. So, you know, he's pretty beat up. And also he is older and he, he there is a slippage. It's not that it's unreliable, but I think there is a slippage in his 
brain. But mm-hmm. the important thing is, books written in third person. My job is to see and hear what is being shown to me uh, faithfully. And so in that sense, because I was talking about this to, to Stephen Hogan who's doing the audio book, there's nothing untrue in the book in that sense because everything that's happening he's experiencing. Mm. So in that sense, it's a, it's a narrative. But it's for the reader, the reader to say, oh, is that a different decade? Or, and, and certain, certainly there's a, one experience that he has where he just he wakes up in St. Stephen's Green and it hasn't obviously happened. So um, I, I think I'm depending on the reader also to be the, the graceful interpreter mm. of, of, the, of the kind of battle of, of making a book. Just to finish off, I wanted to touch on um, fatherhood because that's just been one of the big connections for me with your writing. Um, I've mentioned before that I have a, a, a heart of steel when it comes to reading and I always slightly suspicious of people when they say that books make them cry and I'm like really mm. I, but then I found myself when my first son was about a year old um, and I happened to be in Alicante of all places mm. uh, and having to hold him at night in order to keep him asleep and we were in a weird place and he was very unsettled mm. as I was reading A Long Long Way mm. a novel which is very much sort of centred around a father and son and their relationship mm. and has a devastating ending uh, which I won't go into for anybody who hasn't read the book you must read it but I had this terrible situation which was I was holding a sleeping child whilst reading this book by the light of a window and my shoulders were shaking as I was kind of sobbing and trying not to wake up this child and I was like oh here, here I am finally crying at a book and it's one of only of a few books that have actually had this sort of effect on me but often it's to do with fatherhood mm. you, you've you dedicated this most recent book to, to your son and I know that obviously your relationship with your son has informed the, the two books before that as well well this is a different son this book this yes, is yes. Yeah. So, you, but both of your sons obviously you, you uh. have an extremely sort of close and important relationship with with them both and I just wonder how how fatherhood has uh, if you like informed your writing and particularly I suppose the emotional impact of it you know you can probably get by in the world obviously many do without being a parent or anything it's it's, you know it's not absolutely fine but um, for me uh, who never expected to be married or have kids or anything like that um the now my father died um, last year last January a year ago now and I hadn't seen him for 10 years and it was a truly destroyed relationship I mean it just was null and void and uh, and hadn't been right since maybe I was 15 you know innocent 15 but uh, that gives you weirdly a kind of uh, well I mean it could I suppose it could completely unmoor you and, and I'm sure it did actually for many years when I was a very neurotic young man but it also makes you wonder what's the opposite of that mm. how do you how would you make that go right and a lot of the book I mean there probably isn't a book that isn't somehow about that um, plays you know like Our Lady of Sligo where she describes her father bringing her just out into the back garden to see, you know, the, the wretched little plants growing up in the sea, 
salty air of Slide of of Galway. Nothing, you know, there's nothing, but it's everything. So all those minute, tiny little moments, almost so tiny you can't see them, turn out to be your specks of gold that you've rescued from the river. And if you put them all together, you get your reward for being alive. And even when, I mean, Murr and Carl were born first, they were the twins. And when Toby was born, I because I knew the privilege of having the twins, I the bloody hard work of having the twins. <laughs> Never so exhausted. I mean, I hadn't even had the kids and I was exhausted. Um, but when Toby was born, I, I wrote that in a poem, my reward for being alive. That's what it felt like. Mm. So this was the, it's like the recompense given you by the gods um, in place of what maybe you were denied or you just didn't have by chance or by the narrative given to you. So the contemplation I say of my children, I mean sons, these two sons in particular, a, a Thousand Moons is dedicated to mysteriously to see, but I think it's fair to say that that's my daughter because uh, she didn't want her name on it. Uh, they're so strict, really, these children, <laughs> but never mind. Uh, they don't allow you to do anything, um, but it's fine. It's good, it's discipline, isn't it? The discipline of the child towards the parents is much more important than the dis discipline the other way. We think we're doing all the work. No, no, no. They are trying their best to put a little, even pattern of perfection on us, just to try and improve us a little bit to be more worthy of their love anyway. Uh, but just to contemplate them, it, it's that thing, you know, you know, in all childhoods there's illnesses and and it's what you feel in those moments is actually what you actually have in your heart and mind. But it's not always visible, it's not all, all, you can't always communicate with it and you wouldn't want to be always in communication with it. But when your child isn't well or it's an emergency or when your wife isn't well and it's an emergency, when that sense of love springs forth just to become visible, just to hang there in front of you and you just think, I... Ah, you know that you're overwhelmed by it uh, then you realize oh my even to realize that you actually authentically do love them is mm -hmm. kind of a victory mm -hmm. uh, you know you're not making it up it's not like a literary construct you actually feel that <laughs> uh, the, the fact that they put you back to these primary feelings um, primary love uh, because you know you we were discussing um, the girl in you know his love for his wife June in the book and how that is you know when you when it's first there it's if this nature but actually that first there love it, it can be tucked away a bit then for the purposes of, of a marriage or just you know making the toast in the morning it would be an encumbrance on you you couldn't get up the stairs if you were in that state of love but it's in there and the sense of emergency in a child or in your wife or whatever or your spouse or can can just bring it back up and bring it out like visible and you know love visible uh, and that's what I felt with my sons and my children in general just to behold them sometimes and I'm sitting there a little bit I'm sitting there really quietly and as you get older you sit even more quietly because you think if I make a sudden movement that like a bird coming in to feed at a bird table 
if you make a movement they fly away and you certainly don't want to make a movement to make your child's love fly away and that responsibility I would say I would take the risk of saying that the sense of responsibility you have your your own children is the same sense of responsibility you have towards your own work because they give you ways of being in the world your children they can they don't necessarily complete you but they can sort of reposition you uh, because because you're no longer the most important thing in your world in fact your your self-authorship is defunct because now you're you're watching people authoring themselves and that's more interesting and it's more informative and it's more valuable so that's what I'd say about that but I mean I could we could talk about this for at least 72 hours for sure <laughs> that would be our so longest important. episode yeah these... it would be the longest episode but you know <laughs> but the best um <laughs> I, w I won't talk to you for 72 hours. I I've had enough of your time already, Sebastian, but honestly, thank you so much for this book, but also for all of them, because they are connected, uh, but I would say that any reader could pick any one of them up and find everything in it, so thank you. Thank you. Huge thanks to Sebastian Barry and to you for listening. Old God's Time is available now from Waterstones, and for a strictly limited time, signed copies are available from waterstones.com.